This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Twenty years ago, in 2004, George W. Bush was president. The country was at war with Afghanistan and Iraq. Two NASA rovers had successfully landed on Mars. Here on Earth, people were sporting Live Strong bracelets and Uggs boots. Heya by Outkast was at the top of the charts, and iPods were at the cutting edge of new tech. A lot of stuff was happening. But in early February of that year, on the campus of Harvard University, students were abuzz about something else. A new website created by a small group of sophomores that people were signing up for in droves. Mainly what I remember was that my friend Chris sent me some kind of invite and he was like, oh, come on and just join the masses already. The website was Facebook, or the Facebook, as it was known back then. And even though at the time it wasn't doing anything that revolutionary, nothing that hadn't already been done by MySpace or Friendster, it immediately spread like wildfire. Within a couple of months of its launch, Facebook had expanded, first to other Ivy League schools, then to colleges across the country. By the time it opened to the public in 2006, it had almost 10 million users. Today, it has more than 3 billion globally. Facebook has changed how we connect with others. Facebook at first was really exciting because it was like a way to keep in touch with people who you maybe had moved away from or you haven't seen, you know, after high school or family that lives far away. It affected how we made friends, met romantic partners, or talked about them. People would be like, quote unquote, dating. But like, if you weren't Facebook official, then there was a lot of scrutiny of like, well, are you really dating or whatever? It created new ways to find support and community. I was always like heartbroken in college. So there was this one group I joined and it was called Once When I Fell in Love with Someone They Did Not Reciprocate. It also changed what or how much we knew about our friends. You know, finding out that some of my Facebook friends were sharing very problematic political viewpoints. It became a way to curate your existence. To put on this air of like, look how great things are and look how great my life is. But beyond all of that, over the past 20 years, Facebook has morphed and changed. It's become an integral part of politics and information sharing, not just taking snapshots of what people are thinking and talking about, but actually driving the conversation. It's transformed news, public trust in the government, and how we think about privacy. It's played a role in revolutions and violent outbreaks. On this episode, Facebook turns 20, a look at its beginnings, its impact, and how it operates. To get started, let's go back to the beginnings. The site's origin story has been told over and over, the ambitious Harvard students making it all happen. But there is a different take out there about how all of this got going, 
one that has been tied to government activities and attempts to spy on citizens. And the timing of Facebook's launch has led to some speculation about it all. Grant Hill dug deeper into this. In the 1980s, Chester Gordon Bell was one of the architects of the Internet. I'll say I'm one of the computing pioneers. And that's just one of his achievements. Over the years, Gordon has made many other important contributions to the field of computing. So it wasn't all that surprising when, in 1997, one of his colleagues asked if he could preserve Gordon's work, scan all of his books into an archive about computer science history. The request gave Gordon an idea. Why stop at books and research papers? So I said, why don't I see what it's like if you scanned everything in your life and put it online? Information about his life that before would have been impossible to collect without the kind of emerging technology now at his disposal. He brought the idea to Microsoft and hired an assistant. And we started scanning, scanning everything. Emails, meetings, his online browsing history. It wasn't long before Gordon started to wear a camera around his neck that regularly snapped photos on a timer. He wore a GPS receiver that tracked his location, even an altimeter. The idea was to create a surrogate memory, a trove of stored data to supplement the flawed recall of his human mind. It's really how I can go back and pinpoint something. In 2002, Gordon and his team wrote their first paper about his experience documenting everything and the novel problems that came with organizing human life and all this new data electronically in a searchable and coherent way. The main display line that I like to think of is really a timeline. I, I mean, I love timelines. What may seem obvious now was anything but back then. He was blazing a new frontier. His team estimated that, minus video, an 80-year-old could jam all their data into just a terabyte of storage, a lifetime of memories on a thumb drive in your pocket. It wasn't long before people started paying attention to this new thing Gordon was up to, blending computing with cameras and sensors and memories. The practice became known as life logging. And eventually, the U.S. military came calling. We uh, talked about what they could do in the project. Specifically, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, researchers who develop innovative and often secret technology for the U.S. military. In 2003, DARPA sought proposals for its own lifelog program to research the potential applications of this new way of collecting, storing, and organizing memories. Gordon says he discussed ideas about life logging with Google Glass developer Thad Starner, who conducted DARPA-funded research on body-worn sensors for soldiers. He couldn't tell us exactly all the things it was doing, but troops should wear it, go out on patrol and gather information about different sites and things like that. Researchers at DARPA believed that the library of data gathered via life logging could eventually be fed into AI models that could then predict human decision-making. But soon, word got out about the agency's ideas. Then it became, I think, a kind of a hot potato. Privacy advocates and lawmakers worried that the LifeLog program could be used for purposes other than tracking troop locations. Maybe all American lives would get logged, whether we wanted it or not. 
After 9-11, clandestine surveillance programs were being uncovered and stomped out left and right, causing a panic over privacy. But I just want to share with you some of the privacy concerns that I think have already been mentioned by our chairman. One of those programs was called Total Information Awareness. Its existence was revealed by the New York Times in 2002. Here's how the late Senator Carl Levin described the program then. It's a program to develop and integrate information technologies, enabling the intelligence community to sift through multiple databases, sources, passports, visas, work permits, driver's license, credit card transactions. The description was comically menacing. The vision of a virtual centralized grand database on the actions of countless Americans and foreign nationals. Even the program's logo seemed ripped out of some conspiracy theory fever dream. The image of an all-knowing eye atop a pyramid gazing upon the world. It caused major concerns about civil liberties. If these tools fell into the wrong hands, say, an American dictator, things could go south very quickly. So in 2003, Congress canceled the Total Information Awareness Program. And the whole issue also cast shade on the LifeLog Program which now seemed like just another excuse to pry. Senators and whoever looked at it and said, oh, we can't be doing this surveillance stuff. The creator of DARPA's LifeLog program later insisted the research had nothing to do with spying. But the damage was done. On February 4th, 2004, DARPA shut down LifeLog. February 4th, 2004 the very same day that a skinny college student officially launched a strange new website. What is the Facebook exactly? It's an online directory. You sign on, you make a profile about yourself by answering some questions, phone numbers, instant messaging screen names, anything you want to tell, interests, what books you like, movies. To be clear, there is no evidence DARPA had a hand in the creation of Facebook. When I asked about it, Meta, Facebook's parent company, declined to comment. It sounds like something your weird uncle might post on Facebook, or YouTube for that matter. Could this be a coincidence that Project LifeLog and Facebook happened in the same day? Before the launch- Gordon Bell says it's no surprise that so many people were interested in LifeLogging for different reasons. Memories weren't just valuable to those who created them. The information within them was an untapped resource. Fungible data that could be bought, sold, analyzed, or tracked. You know, in fact, I had a meeting at Facebook uh, very early with them, and I said, one of the things you should do is make your timeline. As for now-defunct secret government programs, computer scientist and former DARPA researcher Newton Lee says Facebook remains an indispensable tool for law enforcement and intelligence agencies by keeping the dream of total information awareness alive. Sure, the program was, you know, canceled, but the idea still lingers. Newton says thanks to social media sites like Facebook, that long-fabled all-knowing database has essentially arrived, with much of its information volunteered by users and often made available without a warrant. Any legal entities such as the FBI can actually piece together your entire life. Just like the internet, Gordon Bell knew lifelogging would revolutionize society and what it means to be human. But today, he can't recall the last time he looked through his surrogate memory. His old photos have mostly become screensavers. People say, what's a good app? Screensaver. (laughs) 
Yet the cameras and sensors keep getting smaller and cheaper and more accurate, capturing, uploading, and organizing every little detail of life inside this world Gordon helped build. And he insists the benefits of it all outweigh the drawbacks, like the watch monitoring his heartbeat. And the fact that somebody else has got a copy of this somewhere, you know, or looking at it, is personally not bothering me at all. That story was reported by Grant Hill. We're talking about Facebook, which has now been around for 20 years. It started as a site for college students. It was even named after a college tradition, the hard copy Facebook that some universities gave out to their freshman classes, kind of like a yearbook so that people could get to know each other. These days, Facebook is no longer the preferred social media site for students, but in a lot of ways, it and the tidal wave it kicked off has transformed the college experience. Liz Tung has more. I remember the first time I heard about Facebook. It was the fall of 2004, and my high school friends were home from college for Thanksgiving. They told me there was this new social networking site, even better than MySpace. And absolutely everyone was on it. I unfortunately couldn't yet join because I was taking a year off and didn't have a .edu email address. Back then, only college students could join. But that just added to Facebook's mystique. It was like this secret club just for people our age. No adults allowed. So do you remember when Facebook first came on the scene? Oh, yeah. No, I distinctly remember it. This is Marcus Hotaling, director of the Counseling Center at Union College in upstate New York and president of the Association for University and College Counseling Center Directors. And it, it, prior to that, it was MySpace. But it wasn't, as I would argue, there wasn't the emotional connection that Facebook and now other apps have had. I remember those early Facebook days once I was able to join. It was exciting being able to connect with people outside your immediate circle, getting the chance to secretly stalk your crushes, feeling like you were part of something. But as time went on, Facebook began to morph. The first big change came in 2006 with the news feed, the ability to see what other people were doing, what pictures they'd posted, what events they attended, whose profile they'd posted on. It was so controversial in the beginning that hundreds of thousands of students across the country signed a petition against it, calling it, quote, creepy and, quote, stalker-esque. Here's how Danigal Young, a psychology professor at the University of Delaware, recalls the uproar. I remember the first day that I walked into my college class and my students were all, it was a small class, 20 students, and they were all freaking out. I'm like, what is the matter? And they said, this is so weird. You know, we're on the Facebook and it's like sharing our online behaviors with everyone that we're connected to. And they were like, this is creepy and weird. It's telling everyone that I broke up with my boyfriend or whatever. So there were these little moments when Facebook was sort of just experimenting with what level of disclosure are people comfortable with. And every time people were kind of adapted. They're like, oh, I guess this is this is cool. This is what makes it interesting. It's around that time that Marcus Hotaling remembers starting to hear different kinds of complaints from students during counseling sessions. Oh, this happened and I wasn't invited. 
Um, or I saw that my friend said that they were busy this weekend or said that they couldn't do something this weekend. And then I saw pictures of them posted that, that they were at a party. And that was just the beginning. Richard Shattuck, who directs the Counseling Center at Pace University in New York City, says things only got worse with the advent of smartphones. Then it became uh, a real problem. Um, And and I think one of the interesting things is although FOMO um, was coined before social media, it became a very popular term because of social media. That led to students spending a lot of time online. In 2009, Facebook introduced one of its biggest and maybe its most addictive features, the like button. And then when the the economy of likes came about, you know, the currency, it started to take a, a turn and many might say for the worse because uh, it became a currency that you as a student wanted lots of. The more likes, the more looks, if you will, you know, the more attention one's pictures get, the more seemingly the more popular you are. It seemed like each new feature brought new problems. I did an informal poll of some friends, and they reminded me of all kinds of issues I'd forgotten, like how Facebook Messenger led to communiques from creepy strangers. Like, who is this DMing me? So then I get to campus and he started like semi like stalking me. There was the close friends feature rolled out in 2011. And I just remember being so hurt one time because one of my friends, I remember looking at his page and not seeing myself on his top friends list. And I was like, what the heck? Like we've been like best friends for so long. And um, and that sort of was the start of a regression in our in our friendship bullying and mean girl stuff, not to mention teenage drama. There were people who would just be going back and forth. And it was also that time where people were posting things. You couldn't really tell some of their, like, inflections or, like, the tone of their voices. As Facebook expanded its features and its reach, Richard and Marcus say the social media-related angst students were reporting expanded and deepened. It became a 360-degree immersive experience of all anxiety all the time, making people feel lonely, excluded, and inadequate. Other people always get at least 20 likes on their posts, and I'm only getting 10. Why don't people like me? Or everyone's getting amazing internships for the summer, and I haven't even started looking yet. Or simply the steady stream of photos of people looking their best as the student in question sat clicking through pictures, eating chips in their sweatpants. Of course, these days, Facebook isn't nearly as popular among college students. But its descendants, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, have continued and grown the pressure to always be on and to broadcast your life, or at least the best parts of it. I think it's kind of morphed into a... You know, a narcissistic, like, hey, look at me all the time. Look at what I'm doing. I had a student once who who said to me, and I I still laugh at this. She goes, we, it was a Halloween. And she's like, we took probably 250 pictures before all of us decided on a picture that we all agreed on posting. She's like, we were fighting. There were tears. There were curse words. And she's like, and when we finally all agreed on one picture, she goes, the statement underneath was BFFs, friends forever. And she's like, and what a crock that that was, because we were just fighting about this. 
So if you're putting it up there to put this air of like, look how great things are and look how great my life is, that's where it becomes a problem for me. I asked both Richard and Marcus if their students seem to be aware of the effects social media is having on their lives and mental health. Richard said a lot of the students he talks to think the problems they're bringing in are interpersonal, not tech-related. After all, he said, social media for them is like water for fish. They've never known life without it. But Marcus has a different perspective. He teaches a class on social media and mental health that encourages students to take a critical look at how social media affects them. I think they recognize the role that social media plays in their lives. Like sometimes it makes them feel good. Sometimes it makes them feel really cruddy. So I think that they're aware that it plays a role in their lives in the emotional ups and downs. And I think that there's the desire to kind of learn about, like, you know, the the feedback that I get is like, you know, I'm going to try to make some changes in my life. I'm not going to eliminate it. And that's never been my MO is to say, you need to get rid of it. It's like, you need to look at how you use it and like, what role do you want it to be in your life? Because the fact is, Richard and Marcus both told me, social media isn't going away. And college students today are much savvier consumers than my classmates and I were back in 2004. And for all the concerns we hear in the media about social media, research still hasn't conclusively determined whether social media brings more bad than it does good to our mental health. We have always vilified new things. Like, you know, if we go back to the 80s, I remember when we had to start putting the warning label on music, like, oh, parental advisory and and video games make people violent. I think it's the same thing with with this and social media. Like, it isn't just social media that we can't just vilify the tool. We have to, again, look at how the person who's engaging with it. It's how you choose to use it. That story was reported by Liz Tong. We're talking about Facebook at 20. Coming up, how did the site morph from a simple way to connect to a place that drives opinion and behavior? It was very apparent that something really weird was going on in social media. I don't think anyone really understood at the time what was happening. That's next on The Polls. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Carvana. On a mission to make car buying more convenient and affordable than ever before. In minutes, you can browse thousands of options under $20,000. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today to get started. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. Stories that change the way you think about your life. How how did we get here? 
The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about Facebook at 20. Over the years, the platform has introduced a lot of new features. The news feed, the like button, live streaming, and on and on. But some of the biggest changes happened more quietly, behind closed doors. The version of Facebook that I used back in the day, it, it bears very little resemblance to current Facebook. That's Jeff Horwitz, technology reporter for The Wall Street Journal and author of Broken Code, Inside Facebook and the Fight to Expose Its Harmful Secrets. Jeff says at some point, Facebook started to show users not just content from their friends, but the content that was getting the most engagement on the site. But it took quite some time for people to catch up to the impact of these changes. I was covering politics in Washington, D.C. during the 2016 election, and it was very apparent that something really weird was going on in social media. I don't think anyone really understood at the time what was happening. And, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the 2016 election, everyone sort of recognized that that had been a very weird election and that social media had been, you know, sort of a driving force. And I think nobody really knew what that like why that was and, you know, sort of the first effort was just like, well, must have been some foreign entity, you know, manipulating it, right? It must be the Russians. Right. And I guess there was, at the time, nobody was quite sure, like, is this just showing what people really feel? Is this just, is social media just a reflection of who we are? Or is it making us who we now appear to be? Right. And this is, I think, you know, for many years, this was kind of Facebook's stock response was, well, like, you know, if you have a problem, take it up with humanity. Um, (laughs) And, you know, which is the whole idea was that this was a very democratic system, that it gave voice to people who didn't normally have voice in, you know, public spheres. And, you know, sometimes that was going to be a little unruly. But obviously, you know, I think anyone who's committed to democracy would think that, you know, giving more people a voice is a good thing. That said, that really wasn't what the company was finding internally its own products were doing. Uh, After the 2016 election, the company itself was pretty shaken by, you know, just trying to figure out why discourse on the platform had gotten as bad as it had been, why fake news appeared to be overtaking real news, Questions of that nature that just simply they, you know, never thought to look at before in in any serious depth. And what the company internally began to document over and over again was that the way that it was designing their products wasn't just simply allowing the most popular content to bubble to the top. Uh, And sometimes that was just weird, unpleasant stuff. It was actually changing what content succeeded uh, and changing how people communicated. And so one recurrent finding was that the platform had basically been built in a way that rewarded rage-inducing content, what they called rage bait uh, or hate bait. (laughs) And, you know, it turns out that nothing gets more attention than, you know, sort of an outlandish position or a public fight. I mean, this is the way things work in offline life too, right? If you're at a cocktail party and and all of a sudden voices are getting raised in a conversation nearby and someone's starting to drop uh, swear words, you stop your conversation and you listen to what's happening over there. 
Now, obviously, in offline life, we have mechanisms to like determine that that isn't a good form of attention. Facebook didn't have any of that, right? So the the platform basically viewed any engagement as good engagement. And that led to some really weird behaviors. One of the things that was documented internally is that foreign political parties were actively changing their platforms, not just their talking points, but their platforms to be more combative and more hostile because that was the only way to get distribution on the platform. And I'm wondering if you can dig a little deeper on how the platform amplified rage-inducing content? Because, you know, if you look at your Facebook feed, a cute puppy also gets a lot of engagement, right? Or a cat video gets a lot of engagement. So how exactly did the ragey stuff rise to the top? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is something that Guy Rosen, Facebook's head of integrity for many years, said that, uh, you know, the way they rank content was great for cat videos, but perhaps not things like politics. It's probably a pretty safe thing for the world when the thing that gets sort of the most attention and the craziest video involving a cat is getting sort of promoted as heavily as possible by the platform, right? It's, you know, this is a way to just surface entertaining cat content. But when it comes to, to things like politics, the question of like, does it garner attention isn't necessarily a great predictor of value and, you know, like, it would be as if the craziest headline in the newspaper was whatever went first, regardless of whether or not there was a story to back it up. So there was no, there was basically no editor at the helm. It was just all raw emotion in a way. Like Yeah, no, no editor and no breaks, right? If mm-hmm. uh, it turns out that things that were false, they outperformed because it turns out things that are false, one, they tend to be more entertaining than things that are true. And two, if people were, you know, responding, saying, you know, to a a post saying like, this is just absolutely fabricated, like what a horrific lie, that was good engagement. That would just mean that the original post would get spread even further, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And so this is kind of, in some ways, it was a system designed with a lot of accelerants and absolutely no breaks. Jeff said for a long time, the conversation about bad behavior and misinformation was focused around what users can and cannot post and how that's enforced. But he says maybe those are the wrong questions to ask. We like really focused on the question of like, well, you know, what rules should Facebook make? Should it take this particular piece of content down? As opposed to the, the flip side of that question, which is what does Facebook promote? Mm-hmm. How can it be gamed? And what does sort of the system, the company set up, like whose interest does it serve? And if you can, you know, explain a little bit more how that promotion happens. Because in part, it is based on my likes, right? And what what I guess the algorithm can garner about me and who I am and what I want to look at. But who else is making those decisions? I mean, it's it's not it's not a who else. There <laughs> is no one, um, yes. and it's not just likes either, right? Uh, it's do you pause when scrolling? That is a, a positive signal. Do you put an emoji response? That's a very positive signal, right? Basically, any form of engagement is good. So if I just get you worked up, even if you're unhappy about it, 
that is generally going to be read as like a positive signal to spread that content to more people who don't necessarily even follow it. And the research internally demonstrated very clearly that the things that traveled the best around the platform were not, shall we say, the cleanest, highbrow, most appropriate content. It was kind of the opposite of that, in fact. So it was just really sort of like what gets attention in a split second was really the thing that drove basically what information was going to travel, what was going to succeed on the platform. And, and so you'd have, you know, whether that was going to be fake headlines or like gross medical images or really, really provocative, you know, firebrand politics. It, these were the things that were going to get rewarded and there was no human in the loop. Jeff Horwitz is a technology reporter for The Wall Street Journal and the author of Broken Code, Inside Facebook and the Fight to Expose Its Harmful Secrets. We'll post my full conversation with Jeff in a couple of days. Follow our podcast and you won't miss it. We also asked Facebook about some of the points Jeff made. They said in a statement that if people don't want an algorithm-driven timeline, they can go back to a list of posts in chronological order by going to the Feeds tab. They also say they do demote some types of posts, like spam, posts that try to trick people into clicking like or comment, and posts that their third-party fact-checkers have flagged as misinformation. Over the years, users, parents, politicians, and researchers have had a lot of questions about how Facebook affects politics, mental health, and social movements. So how do researchers work with a social media platform that has complete control over what data they can access? Alan Yu looked into it. In 2021, computer scientist Laura Edelson got banned from Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp by Meta, the parent company for all those platforms. Laura says it's been a challenge, and not just on a professional level. The moms group in town is how people find their lost dogs, find out that there's a school delay. My town posts the notice for town meetings on the Facebook page for the town. Laura's colleague and fellow researcher, Damon McCoy, was also kicked off. I used to say it was us and Trump, but now it's just us. And here is why. It all started after the U.S. presidential election in 2016, when Facebook was under a lot of scrutiny over whether the company had mishandled user data and swayed the outcome of the election. CEO Mark Zuckerberg testified in front of Congress in April 2018. But it's clear now that we didn't do enough to prevent these tools from being used for harm as well. And that goes for fake news, for foreign interference in elections and hate speech, as well as developers and data privacy. We didn't take a broad enough view of our responsibility, and that was a big mistake. A few months later, Facebook released an archive of political ads from 2018 onwards that had run on the platform in the U.S. It's time to put America first. Energized Democrats greet Congressman Beto O'Rourke like a rock star. Something that a lot of our folks say on a regular basis is that they stand with Planned Parenthood. But when 10 states criminalize the Second Amendment, the media says nothing. 
Facebook invited people to look through those ads to find out how much each advertiser paid for ads and how many ads they ran, for example. Laura and Damon, who were both working at New York University at the time, got interested in this data immediately. They wanted to understand the powerful recommendation engine that Facebook is and the effects the ads can have on society. They went through the ad archive Facebook released. They quickly published some work in 2018 showing that then-President Donald Trump was the biggest political advertiser on Facebook. Facebook welcomed their work, but Laura says that just as quickly, they realized there were some important details missing. One of the biggest issues was that Facebook didn't make ad targeting data available. So you could see the ad, you could see demographic information about who the ad was shown to, but you couldn't see how the advertiser had targeted the ad. Facebook advertising is different from TV or magazines or billboards because it is hyper-specific. Advertisers can specify age groups, cities, shared interests, say people between the ages of 30 and 40 who listen to public radio in Seattle. Laura says they could not get information about this, how advertisers had targeted their ads. And that means a big part of the picture was obscured. So if you wanted to understand patterns across the entire ad ecosystem, you need information about the entire ad ecosystem. This targeting data is valuable because they wanted to study who the advertisers wanted to reach and who they were actually reaching. Laura and Damon found a solution. They worked with news outlet ProPublica to make a research tool that allowed them to collect information that Facebook provides to users when they look for it. Here's Damon. Facebook will show their end users some of the targeting criteria that was used to deliver that advertisement to them. You can click on the ad, there's tiny little ellipses. And then with that, you can say like, why am I seeing this ad? And then it'll show you. The tool they created, which people volunteered to download, then collected that information and shared it with the researchers. Facebook did not like what Laura and Damon did. The company ordered them to stop in 2020. And in 2021, Facebook cut off their access completely. The company said in a press release that they did it because Laura and Damon were collecting data about Facebook's users in a way that broke the company's terms of service. Laura and Damon are still doing their research, but now they need to rely on a research partner to get them the data. Laura is now at Northeastern University. A Meta spokesperson said he could not tell me more details about this specific case. He also pointed out that the company has a track record of working with outside researchers on a variety of topics. But in talking to some of those researchers, it turns out that getting your hands on Facebook data can be a challenge. Researcher access to Meta systems has really been on a downward trajectory over the past decade. Dean Freelon is a professor of communications at the University of Pennsylvania. A few years ago, Facebook invited him and other social science researchers to work with them on research using Facebook data as part of a group called Social Science One. He says it would be unreasonable to expect complete access. There are going to be certain details 
that corporate incentives are aligned against revealing to outsiders, right? I get that. That is a fact that you have to accept if you want to do work with it. Like if you have a fundamental problem with that, then you need to get out of social media research because there's no way around that. But he still feels the data he can access is beneficial. Because you can do a lot of really interesting work under the assumption that the process that produces the data is a black box, but that the output of that black box can be evaluated productively and usefully. Another problem is that even if Facebook allows a researcher to work with their data, actually doing it is more trouble than it's worth, says Cody Bunton, a computational social scientist at the University of Maryland, who is also part of the Social Science One research group. He walked me through what a researcher has to do to work with Facebook's data. An agreement between Meta and the researcher's institution. Create a Facebook account. That Facebook account has to be added to a Facebook business. And then you get a certificate that you can use for OpenVPN. You have to bring all of your analysis and all of your data to Facebook's Enclave. You cannot export that to your computer. Every six months, all of the results of your analysis are scrubbed. He says Facebook could make life easier for researchers if they wanted to. Reddit and Twitter, which is now called X, did it for many years. Danigal Young, a political scientist at the University of Delaware, says that in some cases, Facebook knows what they can do to help researchers, but just don't want to do it. In 2019, Facebook invited her and other academics to meet some of Facebook's in-house researchers. One of the researchers said, would it help you to have like an interface that mimicked what Facebook looks like so that you could use that to run experiments on your own. And I was like, that would be amazing. A mock-up Facebook, which researchers could use to study eye movement or people's reactions, which emojis they used. This researcher indicated that that's something that they've been working on internally. When we got back together in the main room and I raised my hand and said, this development would be something that researchers could really use. It was clear that that is not something that they had any interest in sharing outside of the platform itself. And that, to me, is sort of the, the story of how things go with Facebook. They want to engage with academic researchers outside of the organization. They want academics and scholars to know that they have people internally asking the hard questions and doing the work. But it is so clear to all of us who work in this space that they're not actually interested in having the answers to those questions inform the way the platform operates. Her students have created their own mock Facebook pages, but she says it's just not going to be as good as the real thing. I told Facebook about all these critiques and questions from researchers, and a spokesperson sent me this statement. Quote, we're committed to supporting rigorous independent research and have a track record of working closely with researchers to ensure they have access to the right tools and data to better understand our impact. We're also continuing to partner with academic researchers to better understand our role in elections. To this end, we recently rolled out additional tools for researchers to access more publicly available content across Facebook and Instagram, end quote. 
Dana Gao says the overall problem is that Facebook and social media form big parts of our digital media diets, but researchers do not know what's inside. She says unless researchers know what kind of data Facebook has on its users and understand how the platform works, there is no way to even come up with meaningful research questions. How can we, as outsiders, ask? Can you run the following analyses or correlations between I don't know what and I definitely don't know what? So what are you then left with as a researcher? You're left with information that is meaningless and gets you farther from truth than closer to truth. That story was reported by Alan Yu. Coming up, finding support and deep connections through a group that started very small. I was the sole member for six months, and then one young lady joined from America. That's next on The Pulse. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth... Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research, on, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about Facebook at 20 and how the site has changed our lives. One thing that most people can agree on is that Facebook is a good place to connect with others and find communities, sometimes spanning great distances. You can develop friendships that would have never been possible before. Almost 30 years ago, Pip Kaliskan was diagnosed with a rare cancer called dermatofibrosarcoma protuberance, DFSP. It had spread to the soft tissue on her forehead. Removing the cancer left huge scars on her face. The disease is rare, and at the time of her diagnosis, it had barely been documented, let alone researched. 
Pip, who lives in England, felt isolated and alone with her many unanswered questions. Eventually, she found a way to connect with others across the globe through Facebook. Among them was Pennsylvania dermatopathologist Jared Gardner, who is an expert on this type of cancer. Here's their story. I was first diagnosed in 1995. So, you know, there was no internet really at that time. And many, many doctors that I saw in the early days had had never even heard of it or have, had read about it in, you know, a textbook, but they'd never actually seen a patient with it. And there have been endless occasions, appointments, where I've been in a room with a doctor and they've said, oh, just give me a moment. They've walked out the room, they've come out back in with five or six people and they've all come to stare at me like I'm uh, some kind of alien. Because, as I said, so many doctors have never seen it before. And, you know, you try and kind of, as a patient, you want to laugh it off. And I want to be able to be available to educate other people, particularly doctors. But there is a point sometimes when you you just feel dehumanised. You're a specimen or, a, a you know, a number, a case. When I had a recurrence, I decided one day just to set up a Facebook group. I was frustrated at not having somebody to talk to who really understood how I felt with this type of cancer. And I was the sole member for six months. And then uh, one young lady joined from America and we got chatting. She'd just been diagnosed. Um, and, you know, th- this was 2008, so I'd been alone with it for a very, very long time. <laughs> Just to feel that connection to somebody who got the same condition as you, it was completely overwhelming. And it's grown from there. I'm Jared Gardner, and I'm a pathologist in Danville, Pennsylvania. So I really wish I could remember better how exactly it happened, but but I, I somehow became aware of the fact that there were patient groups. And then I somehow found the one focused on DFSP, uh, the group that Pip started, and joined that. And then a patient in that group had like asked a question. I responded and answered their question and then said, you know, I'm not really sure if I'm actually allowed to be here because I'm not really a patient, but I am a doctor who, who knows about this type of cancer and I'm interested in it and just, you know, want to help out. I think I cried then as well. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was so exciting to have a proper qualified medical doctor saying, I, you know, I hope it's okay for me to be here. Like, are you kidding? We've been praying for somebody to come along and, and say, you know, we understand or this is what you should do or this is the advice I would give. Because we, as I said, you know, we always try and preempt our advice in inverted commas with we're not medical experts. Because we're not, we're just patients going through it. So to have a medical expert come into the group was just phenomenal. It still is. I mean, every day I'm grateful that that he's there and that we met. I feel the same way, Pip. Thank you. (laughs) Mutual admiration. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, I always point out, like, I'm not anyone's doctor 
they are not my patient, I'm not their doctor in the group, and I'm just giving educational knowledge, not official medical advice. But there are some things that are very straightforward and easy for me to explain or answer. I, I would strongly agree with that. You know, we there are many times when, as patients, we might have a question, we're trying to get hold of a doctor, we want an appointment, and Gerald can come on and answer the question for us in two minutes. To know that we have a real expert in a disease that is so unresearched, you, you can't put a price on it. And before you know it, your your friends, a perfect example of this, you know, we became not only interacted in the group, but we friended each other on our personal, you know, accounts. And before I realized it over a while, I was like, you know, I talked to Pip a lot more about travel and food and, and the differences between British English and American English and, and other things like that. <laughs> the, you know, for, for all the flack that Facebook and other social media get for the, the bad things that happen through them, there's a lot of really wonderful good things that I've experienced because of social media, but it has personally enriched my life to know Pip and other people like her who I would never have met if it weren't for Facebook and Facebook groups. That was Pip Kaliskin, who lives in England, and Pennsylvania dermatopathologist Jared Gardner. They met in a Facebook group and later in real life. So you might be surprised to know what I did when I came face to face with Jared. I cried. <laughs> <laughs> It's emotional. It was just so overwhelming and exciting, and he's just become a real beacon in my life. Thank you, Pip. He's also a pretty good chap. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great, you made my day. Nicole Curry produced their story. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Ellen Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Our intern is Jaden George. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Stearns & Foster. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted for irresistible comfort with indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for your most comfortable sleep. Learn more at stearnsandfoster.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, MassMutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR.